name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Signpost Forest is located just outside Watson Lake, Yukon. It got its name back in 1942 when a wounded soldier by the name of Carl Lindley was taken to an air station right outside of Watson Lake to recuperate. In those days, a simple signpost would be used to mark distances usually written in miles or kilometers depending on what area and what service it was used for in those days. And one of those signposts outside of Watson Lake was damaged by a bulldozer while Lindley was recovering. So he was ordered to go out and repair it. To personalize it a little bit, he put a sign with the distance from that place to his hometown in Danville, Illinois, with the mileage between the two. Little did he know, he started something, and people who would travel after him would likewise put their hometown and the distance from Watson Lake, Yukon, to their hometown as well. And it's been snowballing ever since. In fact, at the end of 2020, some 80,000, that's right, 80,000 signs have now adorned what was once a signpost, now a one-acre forest, to accommodate all of the places that people point that out. For those of you at home, you can just Google signpost forest. There's a myriad of images. It's quite interesting to see. Signposts and placards are put up. People sign plates. They put their hometown uh, distance license plates and the like all over that forest to designate where they're from. Seems like we all have a little bit of an affinity with where we grew up and our hometown. But we do know, and certainly as believers we know, that nothing is quite home this side of the veil. We're truly on a pilgrimage, and our home is finally when we are at rest in the presence of Jesus in heaven, where we dwell with him forevermore. And thus, playing on this image if we may, we are called to be to one another signposts toward that end, that really we won't find home where our heart is or every myriad of song, lyric, and poetry this side of eternity until we're in the presence of Jesus. And likewise, we're called to be signposts to those who may not yet, to use that old image of a God-shaped hole, know that that won't be met apart from their interacting with Jesus. And so we're called to be those signposts by God's grace, to orient them as well. So as we continue in this journey on this topic of uh, evangelism, we're actually going to look at John chapter 2, and I believe therein are three signposts for us in a topic uh, of evangelism in a passage that isn't traditionally pulled forward as a passage on evangelism. But there's some very high-level reminders for us to help us keep oriented and to help orient others. If we turn back there together, either in your Bible, bulletin, or follow along on the screens, whatever suits you. As we open to John chapter 2, the first four verses, let alone the first four words, give us a myriad of signposts that John doesn't want us to miss. The opening four words are not just kind of a random 
series of orientation on the day, John was very intentional as a gospel writer in all of his imagery, as you well know. Everything pointed back to John 1, 1, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And everything he does points back to that. And so when you read those opening four words on the third day, that's four, right? Um, we should think, what else happens on the third day? It's the reason we gather every week to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Even in the beginning of this first act, John's pointing toward the outcome. And then it's no coincidence that this first miracle of Jesus is a wedding. Furthermore, the place and the, um, the, the, the occasion for the miracle, if you will, is in this way. Now, lots of people like to point out that Jesus knew how to good, have a good time and Jesus enjoyed creation and all of those things likely are true. But that's not the point that John's making in bringing forth this image of a wedding. In fact, he's pointing again toward the end result, which we have in the very back of our Bible in that book of endings in Revelation. In Revelation 21, we see another wedding in 21 verse 2 and following where um, this heavenly city adorned like a bride for her husband comes and is conjoined with earth forevermore as what Jesus has done upon the cross has secured for us a dwelling place with God through faith in him. The imagery is rich. It's really rich. In fact, there's one more signpost in this opening few verses that points to this back at the end of verse 4. As Jesus, it sounds rather odd when Jesus is brought to his attention or the, uh, the, the need for his help in this running out of wine. It seems like a rather odd response to Mary, his mother. Woman, my hour has not yet come. That's because what John's trying to point out is that the hour that he is referring to is on the other side of the cross, which initiates the beginning of the end, whereby heaven and earth will meet forever. So these touch points, these miracles that we see both then and now, are breaking in of the kingdom of God, which will ultimately be established on Jesus' second coming. Now, interestingly, from your biblical knowledge, this is the only place aside from one other where Mary even shows up in John's gospel. Once here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, at this wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the second place we ever see Mary mentioned in John's gospel is at the foot of the cross in the crucifixion account. John doesn't want us to miss the book ending of the beginning from the end. Now, all of this is interesting, but I think what it points to us in terms of a lesson for evangelism is this. We always must keep the end in sight, the signpost um, this fancy term we use is called telos. Um, it's a fancy word that means the end or outcome, the purpose of a thing or person. It's a philosophical term. You're lending to my alliteration this morning with it. But um, telos is pointing to what is the end of a thing. And the end of evangelism is that everyone might come to encounter Jesus Christ and by his grace they're encountered might turn to him. Now, I think that's helpful. I mean, we, we would say, well, of course, if I asked you, what do we do for evangelism? It's, well, so that people might come to know Jesus. 
Then when we get into the how do we do it, what does it look like, how do we engage people, sometimes we can lose the end. We can get too wrapped up in, well, you know, churches run into this too. We've all run into this temptation, local bodies. How do we engage people for Jesus? Well, then it gets highly attractional. It gets driven by goals and agendas and all these other things. And sometimes we can lose the whole end of the thing in itself. And so we've got to remember the reason we do it is so that they might engage Jesus. And even on a local level, all the anxieties we might feel, the how we do it, how we go about it, if we say the right things or don't say the right things, or what about the relationships and all the nuances therein, if we remember that the end goal is that they might encounter Jesus, it's going to look different, perhaps for different people in different situations, but we're called to be those signposts in the way that we lead our lives so that they might encounter him. As simple as that may be, when it goes into real time, sometimes it can get lost. And so we must begin with the end in sight, as John reminds us in the opening pieces of his gospel lesson this morning. I think the second signpost for us is back in the text. We'll grab verse 4 and then jump down to verse 6. It's there that we're reminded again that as the need is brought to Jesus, she is told his time has not yet come, and yet Mary perceptively and wisely tells those servants in verse 6 and following, just do whatever he tells you to do. Now, the passage of time from when Jesus is um, interacting with Mary to the moment that he instructs those servants isn't clear. In the text, we assume that it happens rather quickly, that, you know, Jesus is told, well, my time has not yet come as he talks to Mary. Then Mary turns to the servants, we sequentially think, and says, okay, do whatever he says. And then Jesus turns to them and says, okay, here's what you're going to do. But there's a tension probably felt in the intermediate time. Certainly, the need has already presented itself. They're out of wine. Um, there's already anxiety, especially if you're a servant and you're working there. Um, somebody holds that responsibility, and it's the master of the feast, yes, but it falls on your shoulders as a servant. And so there's a little bit of, of teasing out of timing that comes. And even as the instructions, the detailed instructions that Jesus gives comes, it's not really clear yet what's happening in the instructions. John wants us to see it for our benefit, reading it um, on this side of it. I mean, it's very specific, right? Go get stick, six sewn jars for purification, each holding about 20 to 30 gallons apiece, um, and fill them up to the brim. It seems, okay, well, that's, that's really specific. And a lot of people spilled a lot of ink over what the symbolism of that is. And there's great, rich imagery there. But quite simply, I think, what John wants us to see, keeping the end in sight, is that what Jesus is going to do, and even in solving this problem, is something that is abundant. I mean, when you think about 20 to 30 gallons times six, that's a lot of water, uh, <laughs> however you dice it up, right? Um, and you can just think, I think about my one gallon or half gallon of chocolate milk that my girls drink in the fridge, you know, your mind goes, that's a lot of water. But what John wants us to see is this, namely, that the grace that Jesus is going to pour into that situation is immense. That the beginning of Jesus' ministry is one of abundant grace. And as such, it's this ushering in of this new covenant that's beginning here, 
which fulfills the old covenant, which had limited means of grace through the law. And so as Jesus fulfills the law, the new thing God is doing is something that just ushers in wave after wave of grace that ultimately won't be fully realized until the cross. Now, it's wonderful for us to dwell on that. If you're a servant and you're getting instructions to get six sewn jars and fill them up with 20 to 30 gallons of water in the space of time that that's playing out and your mind's going, I'm going to be in big trouble when the next detail that comes is draw from it and go take it to the master of the feast, you're probably thinking, what is going on here? Um, there's a tension of timing playing out. What is Jesus up to? And I think for our purposes, there's perhaps another signpost that um, a lot of times we know the end of the story, at least we should as Christians, um, but we live now and there's an advance, a vast timing difference. We don't know what it could be. It could be tomorrow, could be after our lifetime, could be a few lifetimes later when that comes to pass. And so we feel the tension of the timing. And I think what this brings to evangelism is this, that that's okay. And that as we have these conversations, as we're called to lead life in such a way that others might encounter Jesus, um, we may not always understand what Jesus is doing. It may not always go like you thought <laughs> when you talk to somebody. Um, it may not always come at the moment that you hoped it might come. Um, or it may be something you pray for for some time. The timing's not ours. It's God's to do. And there's this crazy thing where we have our own will involved as to how we'll engage that, which we'll look at in a moment. And so the timing is God's. And as we think about this, I think the lesson for us is to remember, namely this, the time we've been given is time of grace so that others might come to hear and know the name the only name under heaven by which we might be saved. And so the question for us is not the details of what will happen and how will it occur, but rather are we called and are we being faithful stewards of the time we've been given towards the end that others might come to encounter Jesus. So ours is one of trust and one of obedience in the timing we've been given towards the end that others might come to hear and know <clears throat> the name of Jesus. <clears throat> Now, the final um, end of this story and the, the closing part of our lesson with which comes one final signpost comes in verse 9 and following. It's there, after this tension is felt, the water now turned to wine. Arguably, the stewards yet don't really know, the servants don't yet really know what's transpired in totality. They in their mind, perhaps all the while, wondering what's going to happen when this cup or ladle or whatever image you want to use reaches the mouth of the master of the feast, what words will come from his mouth and what that will mean for you on your way to him, all the while um, they go. They obey Jesus. I mean, and we sometimes forget that's a pretty big moment. He didn't say, by the way, guys, here's what I'm doing. Um, when you draw this out, it's going to be okay. When it gets to the mouth of the master of the feast, it's going to be wine. So don't worry about it. Um, they're not given the instructions. And interestingly, Jesus, we know, could have done this any other way. Jesus could have, in the middle of the feast, said, y'all, I've got this. Don't worry about it. Um, and, and cut the, the, the servants out altogether. He could have gone to the master of the feast himself and performed the miracle right in front of him to see. And yet, for some reason, he uses these servants 
as part of this process. Now, the transformation is complete when it reaches the mouth of the master of the feast, but in the midst of that process, there's a partnership with those around that is taking place. And I think there's a wonderful point that the effect of the transformation that is brought about and the way in which he does it includes us. I mean, it's truly profound. And when Jesus gets involved, the comfort for us in the story is that when Jesus gets involved, it's even better than what we could have imagined. I mean, the outcome is when the wine gets there, what does the master of the feast say? Why'd you save all the good wine to last? I mean, it was better than the stuff they'd prepared for. John wants us to see when Jesus gets involved in the granular of our lives, it goes way better than we could have mapped out. And so ours is one of trust and obedience. Trusting the transformation is always taking place. Not yet complete, but always taking place day after day after day until that moment in Revelation comes to pass. And I think there's the final lesson for us, keeping with my alliteration here, that we keep the end in sight. We are reminded that in the timing, in the intermediate time, we're called to obey and trust. But all the while, um, God gives us these moments of transformation we get to see. And that's where it gets truly exciting. I mean, sure, if Jesus did it, they would have believed in Jesus all the more. But imagine what happens for those stewards, those servants, when they see that through this process, Jesus did something incredible. When we pray for others, when we engage others, and we hear the stories later, or we see prayers answered, or we totally, as I've done before, botched a conversation, and yet, for the grace of God, something still comes out of it, um, you, you begin to see, wow, I mean, this is truly incredible what God can do. And that's what spurs us on. God wants us to be caught up in what he's doing so that we too might be a part of it. And perhaps there is why in the great mystery, God uses people like me and you towards his ends so that as we're caught up in it, we never lose sight of what the end goal is, namely what he's bringing about in those moments. So my friends, as we continue this week and in the weeks to come on this topic of evangelism, as we dive deeper together in Scripture, both in uh, the message on Sundays and then afterwards in small groups, we keep these things before us, keeping the, the main points, as we've looked at the past couple weeks, um, high level in sight. And then as we get to get more granular as we go, we never lose sight of the reason for which we do it, the telos, the end of such goals. We'll get to the granular. That comes on the 29th in a workshop. Um, we'll have ways for you to participate and serve in Good News Club. You'll hear about that in a few couple weeks as ways that we go out in our community to reach others towards that end. But as we do all these things, may we not lose the reason for it. May we recognize that our timing and God's may be different, but we trust and obey in the midst of it. And then lastly, we remember as we walk that out that we're a part of in God's grand plan and mystery, this transformation he's ushering in until his kingdom is fully established on earth, whereby we see revelation come to pass and we reach our end in him, in his presence before, in the greatest celebration the world has ever seen, whereby we're rejoined with all from every generation that's passed in this grand celebration as we meet our end in meeting our maker in Jesus Christ. To him be honor and glory, both now and forevermore. Amen.